Today we continue our study through the book of Colossians. We come to the last message in chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 24 through 29. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there. We'll have the verses on the, on the uh, I almost said overhead. There is no overhead anymore. On the screen there. Uh, now in verses 15 to 23, the ones just preceding, the ones we studied over the past two weeks, we saw the heart of Paul's uh, message to the church in Colossae. This is like the, the heart. Everything sort of flows from this. Remember, the Colossians were facing false teachers, uh, false teachers seeking to add to and diminish from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in response, Paul declares the absolute supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of his character, he is God, his supremacy over creation, his head, his supremacy over the church, and his su supreme work of reconciliation. Of this reconciliation, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 1, Paul writes, And you, addressing the Colossians and really us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ, the perfect God-man, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, has provided a way for sinful men and women to be reconciled, restored in relationship with God. And, and how are we to receive this, this, how we would respond to Christ's reconciling work? Paul tells us, next verse, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Reconciliation to God is given to those who continue in the faith. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and prove their faith to be genuine by continuing in it, by remaining steadfast, stable, not departing from the true gospel. That is the message of reconciliation, the good news of Jesus Christ, that they heard and, ha and, and continues to be de declared throughout the whole world. And then, at the end of verse 23, Paul adds his personal connection to the gospel. He says, of which, what we just read, the gospel, reconciliation, I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says he, not these false teachers that they're dealing with, uh, became a minister of the gospel. And this serves as a transition, if you will, to what follows. Paul's declared the supremacy of Christ. He declares the gospel of reconciliation with God through Christ. And then beginning in 24, he goes on to tell the readers, his readers, What's involved in being a minister of this supreme gospel? And I think at least one of the reasons he does this is to show the Colossians the difference between a true minister, a minister of the gospel, and a, a false teacher. But also, and maybe more importantly for us today, he provides a model for ministry to the church. How did Paul minister to the church? What does it look like uh, to be a minister of the gospel? Well, here it is. So we're going to learn from Paul, from his ministry to the church today. But before we do that, we need to get something uh, straight. So let me ask you a very serious question. I'm going to put it up on the board, or Amber is for me. 
Are you, like Paul, a minister of the gospel? Here's some yeses. Tentative yeses. Uh, okay. Correct answer is yes. You are. If you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a minister of the gospel. Do you believe that? Well, if you're unsure, I'm sure some of you are sure, some of you believe it, maybe some of you have some doubt, so let me help you be assured in three ways. First, by giving you the de definition of the word minister that Paul uses in verse 23 when he says, of which I became a minister. It's the Greek word diakonos, where we get our word deacon, which uh, can be a little misleading as well. Because it literally means servant. Servant. In fact, that's how the word is usually translated in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Same word. I wish the translators uh, had used the word servant here in Colossians as well. Because unfortunately, the word minister has come to refer to those who are uh, paid professionals those who are involved in full-time ministry. The church today, and maybe many, many years in church history, has, has this uh, uh, clergy, laity, minister, layperson division. Well, this is for them, not for us. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Now, I'm not saying we don't need full-time ministers. You guys can keep paying me. That would be great. But when Paul says he became a minister of the gospel, he's saying he became a servant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, if you're unsure about being a minister of the gospel, be sure you are a servant of the gospel. Then second, I want to remind us of what we looked at last week. Maybe that's why most of you know you're a minister of the gospel, because last week, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, Paul writes, all of this, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself reconciled us to himself and gave us, all of us, all who are new creatures in Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. Same word again. God has given everyone who is reconciled to him the ministry service of reconciliation. Therefore, if you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, then by definition, Paul says, You've been given the ministry, the service of reconciliation. Now, whether you take that ministry up or not may be a question to ask, but you've been given this ministry. So I hope that helps you to answer, yes, I'm a minister, a servant of the gospel. But if you're still hesitating, if you're thinking something like, Pastor, you don't understand, I can't be a minister. I have no gifts, no abilities in this area. That's not my calling well, let me tell you just uh, this story I read recently, true story, to assure you of this one final time. Some years ago, a blind, uneducated 70-year-old woman in Africa became a Christian. Soon after, she asked a missionary to underline, remember she's blind, to underline John 3.16 in her Bible. Mystified, the missionary watched her take the Bible and sit down in front of a boy's school. When school let out, she would call a boy or two over and ask them if they knew French. When they proudly responded yes, she would say, please read this underlined passage. When they did, she would ask, do you, do you know what this means? 
and she would uh, then tell them about Christ. The missionary reported that over the next 24, uh, over the next years, not 24 years, 24 of these boys became pastors. This old, uneducated, blind, new Christian woman understood that she was a minister of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, if you've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that as well. You're a minister, a servant of the gospel. Therefore, as we look at Paul's ministry to the church, we know that what we find applies not just to me, not just to Brian, not to Ash, our intern, and other pastors, but it applies to us all, to every one of us. Okay, so now we can turn to our text. Are you you're ready to go now? You're raring? Got a bunch of ministers of the Gospels out there. And the first exciting thing we see in Paul's ministry is Paul suffers for the church. Yay! I know that's not what we want to hear, but that's how he begins the description of his ministry. In verse 24, he writes, he said, uh, in verse 23, I'm a minister of the Gospel... Now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, we'll get to what Paul means by, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. That's a tough one. We'll look at it in a second. But first, I just want us to see that Paul's suffering, that Paul is suffering for the sake of the church. And this reveals his passion, his love for the church. And just so we understand what he means by suffering, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, he gives a summary. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he gives a summary of his sufferings. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. That's a lot of suffering. A lot to handle. And for one willing to suffer, both physically and clearly emotionally, this anxiety, this pressure for the churches, uh, to suffer for anything shows how much you love and care about that thing. But Paul takes it a step further. He explicitly says... Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That seems a bit uh, over the top, right? I tolerate my sufferings. I endure my sufferings. I stand fast in my sufferings for your sake. We can get that, but to rejoice, and this word rejoice, you know what it means? It means to rejoice. There's joy. I take pleasure, joy in my sufferings for you. How can that be? What is up with that? Why does Paul rejoice in his sufferings for the sake of the church? Well, not to repeat myself, but the answer is because he sees his suffering as beneficial to the church. He's passionate about the church. He loves the church. And in some way, somehow, his suffering benefits them. It's for their sake. 
He doesn't enjoy suffering for the sake of suffering. He enjoys suffering for their sake. He rejoices in his suffering. So the question becomes, how does Paul's suffering benefit the church? Or to generalize, how does the suffering of those who serve the gospel benefit the church to such an extent that they can rejoice in their suffering? Well, I think we get an indication of what Paul t- uh, by what Paul tells us here in verse 24, specifically the part we skipped over. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. What does Paul mean by in my flesh and in my suffering, in my flesh, I'm living, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Christ's suffering for the sake of his body. Well, just so you know, this is one of the most debated verses in all of the scripture. So I will clear all that up. I'm thinking of writing a book myself. But whole books have been written on this verse. I'm not going to write one, by the way. But what we can, what, there are some things we can be certain of. We can be certain of uh, what it doesn't mean. Paul's suffering, it doesn't mean Paul's suffering made up for or added to something that was lacking in the atoning sacrificial suffering of Christ. We know this because the New Testament, including Colossians, especially what we studied last week, declares Christ's supreme work of reconciliation. It teaches us he was sufficient. Everything about him was sufficient and supreme in his atoning work. So clearly, Paul isn't saying his suffering helped to fill up Christ's atoning sacrificial suffering work. That was Christ alone to accomplish. So what is Paul saying? Well, it seems to me and others that Paul knows that Christ suffered greatly and necessarily, underline necessarily, by becoming a sacrificial offering for his body, the church. Christ's sacrifice was a necessary sacrifice if anyone was to be saved, if anyone was to be reconciled to God. But Paul also knows that Christ's needed suffering was not the end of the suffering of suffering for the church. He knew that for the church to be planted, uh, to grow, to endure throughout history and throughout the world, suffering, further suffering, would be required. There would be additional suffering needed for the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so Paul as a minister of the gospel, continues to fill up the suffering that is lacking, the suffering that's needed for the sake of the church. And you might ask, why does Paul or anyone need to suffer for the church? Well, let me give you two specific reasons. There's probably others. Actually, I thought of another one. I'm not going to mention it when I was sitting over there because it's not here and we're going to go long anyway. So anyway, we have communion. First, so first, how is suffering? Why is suffering beneficial to the church? Well, first, suffering is needed, required, because the church exists in a hostile world. A world where, as Paul says to the church in Corinth, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is real, and his forces, along with him, are at work in this world. And the last thing they want is for people to come to Christ, uh, to establish churches for the glory of God. And so there's resistance 
uh, uh, to and suffering as the gospel goes forth into this hostile world. When Jesus in Matthew said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, I think we often take this, this is a great promise for the ultimate success of the church, right? But it's also a clear indication that the forces of hell will be fighting against the church. We're going to win, Jesus says, but there's a fight. And this battle causes suffering for the Christian. This is what we see throughout the New Testament and throughout church history. This was certainly true for Paul, if you remember the list, uh, his summary of sufferings. In fact, it was true of all the apostles. The book of Acts records that they all suffered. And the church tradition tells us that they all, save John, suffered to the end, being martyred, killed for their faith. And suffering didn't end with the apostles. Many missionaries seeking to cross cultural barriers and share the gospel have suffered greatly. Also, Christians living in places where the gospel is illegal to share and the church is restricted for not allow, or not allowed at all have suffered, been imprisoned, tortured. These Christians, like Paul, are often, often face resistance, persecution, hardship, and suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. But it's also true, maybe, maybe to a lesser extent, for those of us who seek to serve the gospel within our modern secular culture, there may not be physical persecution, as Paul experienced yet, but there's often ridicule, loss of relationship, other difficulties in our increasingly hostile secular world, hostile to the gospel. So first, suffering is both beneficial and required as the gospel goes forth into a hostile world. And Paul can rejoice in his suffering because it's filling up what's lacking. It meets the needs of the church. Because of his suffering, more people are coming to Christ. As he declares the gospel, more churches are being established as he plants churches and as others uh, around him plant churches. The church in Colossae being an example. He shared the gospel with Epaphras and Philemon and it's believed they planted the church in Colossae. So as Brian said, it's multiplication. And more Christians are growing in their faith and their relationship with God as Paul ministers to them, including the Colossians. And in that... Paul rejoices. That, for that to happen, I had to suffer. And I rejoice in my suffering because of what happened. And that brings us to the second reason. I see that suffering benefits, and it's related. It's not just needed or required. It's essential for the church because the church matures through suffering. Paul knows his suffering, and uh, Christian suffering in general has a positive impact both on the sufferer and the church. Suffering fills up what's lacking. It causes spiritual growth, maturity. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Well, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When the believer, in the power of the Spirit, in relationship with God, God who loves them, endures through suffering, character and hope is produced. 
They become mature, maturer believers in Christ. They grow in their relationship with God. But that maturity doesn't just uh, remain with them, if you will. It's not just uh, sealed in their body. It, it, it moves outward. It empowers them to minister to serve the church. God's servants benefit from suffering by growing in maturity. And the church benefits from having mature believers who serve the church. And for Paul, this is cause for rejoicing. I rejoice in our suffering. He sees this suffering and growth as beneficial to the churches he serves. The suffering of a brother or sister in Christ often is a source of blessing to the church. And I would give one example of that here at Bridges. In the life of uh, Sean and Dina Cadd, they suffered greatly. And they continue to suffer because of the death of their 21-year-old son Hayden, 20-year-old son Hayden. But I can testify that their suffering produced in them endurance, character, and hope. That has been an impact in their life and has impacted our church and beyond. Sean has served uh, the church faithfully and wisely in many ways and as an elder, providing perspectives that come from a hope that's beyond this world. And among other things, Dina began a grief share ministry to help those suffering a loss such as she experienced. And both Sean and Dina have encouraged and counseled and helped people with physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. They've lived out what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Blessed be the God of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So as God's people, ministers of the gospel, suffer, they grow spiritually. And this growth in endurance, character, and hope has a positive impact on the church. They're better equipped to minister to everyone, especially those in need. Paul knew this, and therefore he rejoiced in his suffering. My suffering is causing growth. It's causing maturity in me, and then I can impart that to the churches where I serve. And I must ask myself, and all ministers of the gospel listening to this message, are you willing to rejoice? Are we willing to rejoice? in our suffering for the sake of the church? Or are we even willing to suffer at all? Do we avoid suffering at all cost? Are we willing to see the gospel go forth by standing up in a hostile culture, suffering insults, rejection from family, friends, co-workers? Also, are we willing to rejoice in the suffering that comes our way, knowing that it, it's causing us to grow in maturity? Knowing that suffering produces maturity, people who can minister more effectively to the church. Now, I'm not saying go seek suffering, but I am saying don't avoid it when God brings it. Trust in Him to get you through it and to change you through it. I pray that knowing that our suffering 
is of benefit to the church, will encourage us and enable us to face and even rejoice in our suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's just said that he rejoices in his suffering for his ministry to the church. And then he adds, then he tells us what that ministry includes. That'll be the next two points, point two and three. Uh, First, Paul's ministry, Paul preaches to the church. Verse 25, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God, which means God gave Paul stewardship over the church. As a minister, he was responsible for the church. And what was his responsibility? To make the Word of God fully known. The idea is to lay out the Word of God fully. So Paul preached the Word of God. And just to be clear, when I say preach, I'm definitely referring to what takes place here and in many other churches on Sunday morning, but preaching is not limited to what pastors do on Sunday mornings. It takes place anytime the Word of God is taught. Anytime someone is seeking to make the Word of God fully known. Anytime the Word of God is being proclaimed in such a way that it can be understood and applied. So Paul's ministry is, to, is making the Word of God fully known. I take this, especially that word fully, to mean Paul engaged in expo- expositional preaching of the Word. If you don't know what that is, it's what I'm doing right now. It involves going through, teaching, and applying books and passages of the Bible. When the Word is preached, it's the Word uh, that must be fully in focus. The focus of preaching is not what happens to be on the preacher's heart at the time, but what is on God's heart as seen in God's Word. Now, the specifics of Paul's preaching... Uh, of God's Word are given in verses 26 and 27, to make the Word of God fully known so that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the, the, the message, the focus of the message is that last part, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we'll talk about that. But Paul's ministry was the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a new, new thing that's happening in his world. The, the gospel is going beyond. The gospel is going into uh, this, these former, the lives of these former pagans. Therefore, his preaching of the word included a mystery. Namely, that God's saving work was going to include Gentiles, non-Jews. That Gentiles could and would receive Christ in you. That Gentiles could and would receive the hope, the surety of eternal glory with Christ. That Gentiles would be saved. That Gentiles would be reconciled to God. So Paul's preaching was meant to call people, he called Jews as well, Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. And for the Jews specifically, this was a mystery. Something hidden, less known, not focused on for ages and generations, but now fully revealed to the saints of God. Now, this mystery certainly was hinted at in the Old Testament Scriptures. 
You can find it if you wanted to. For example, Isaiah 49, speaking of the Messiah, the prophet says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And there's lots of stuff like that in the Old Testament. But even with such scripture, the ancient Jewish perspective was that salvation of the Gentiles seemed impossible because of the mutual, there was this mutual hatred between Jews and Gentiles. But the gospel overcame that. The gospel overcomes the divisions between Jews and Gentiles. Notice, Paul is a Jew, and he's rejoicing in his suffering for the Colossians, who are, for the most part, pagan, former pagan Gentiles. The gospel breaks that down. Paul, who was seeking to persecute his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, who were, who were excuse me, Paul, who was seeking to persecute Christians, who were at that time mainly Jews, uh, now is rejoicing in his own persecution for the Gentiles. In Ephesians, Paul, writing of the same mystery, says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. I mean, the gospel is really powerful. It saves souls and it unites uh, people. Jews and Gentiles all sat down at one table and, and counted themselves one in Christ. This had come about only because in uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, they all had the same Christ in them. They were all in Christ, the body of Christ. The indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ is what made this possible. This happened in Colossae. And it continues to happen throughout your history. It happens today. One of the greatest glories of the gospel is that it brings people who are different from each other together. So Paul made the word of God fully known both to Jews and Gentiles. He preached the word to the church. And this means at least two things for us. First, we must be part of churches where the word of God is made fully known. Where the word of God, not the vision of a man, is the authority and the focus of the preaching, of what is taught. I pray that this is the kind of church Bridges is and continues to be. I pray that our, our second value there, our reliance on the word of God, is deeply embedded within us. And I pray for you, for, for you, myself, for any, if for any reason... Well, let me say this, if you're visiting today, and you know, for whatever reason, you decide, I'm not coming back to that church, I hope it's not because we're preaching the Word of God. And I hope when you visit other churches, that's the church you're, kind of church you're looking for. A church that makes the Word of God fully known. A church where the Word of God is the authority. And I pray for us, Bridges people, if for any reason, it would have to be moving, Right? We find ourselves seeking a different church, that our priority will be finding a church that makes the Word of God fully known. Gary shared uh, recently, you know, he was talking to people about church, and you know, you need to find a church where you're needed. And that might be the second priority. Find a church that's making the Word full, uh, of God fully known, and you're needed there. Not that you're just going to fade into the background. Okay, then second application. This means that all of us, ministers of the gospel, not just me, not just Brian, should seek opportunities to make God's word fully known. Whether that involves teaching 
Our, your kids, your grandkids, teaching kids on Sunday morning, leading a home group, sharing the word with friends, family, co-workers. We can all, like that old African woman, blind woman, we can all find a way to make the word of God fully known to the people in our lives. Amen? So now along with preaching the word, Paul also sought to make disciples in the church. Verse 28 tells us, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's purpose in ministry, his reason for fully laying out the word and for what we'll look at, is nothing short of presenting Christ complete, mature, full-grown Christians. He took Jesus' command to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations seriously. This was not a call to evangelism alone. Save them and then walk away. But to evangelism, sharing the gospel, and then making mature disciples of all who come to Christ. And this was not just a duty for Paul, by the way. Rather, it was a great joy. Listen to his words to the Thessalonian church, which Paul planted. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So it was Paul's joyful and glorious purpose to make mature uh, disciples for Christ. And how did he go about doing that? Well, according to verse 28, he had a threefold method. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. First, he proclaimed Christ. Him we proclaim. Christ is the Him. Taken with our last point, when, we fully, uh, when he fully made the Word of God known, he, his focus was on Christ Jesus. He preached Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ at the right hand of the Father. Showing that the word, and by the way, the word for him was limited to the Old Testament and to the revelation he received as an apostle. But it was about Christ. Christ was the beginning and end of, of his message. The 18th century pastor and evangelist George Whitfield said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Paul proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. This certainly meant he, he did evangelism, preaching the gospel to unbelievers, telling them of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, telling that, that, that faith in Christ means forgiveness of their sins, salvation of their souls. But the church, also, the church, us Christians, also need to continually be reminded of the gospel. We need to glory in the gospel that saved us. We need to worship Jesus for the gospel. In fact, I try to do that in every message I preach, to focus on the gospel. And Jesus made sure we would remember his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. He did this by instituting the Lord's table, communion, which we'll participate in very soon. So first, Paul proclaimed Christ. The second thing Paul engaged in was warning everyone, which means that in the name of Christ, he corrected and admonished them. Paul made the whole gospel clear. Not just the initial putting your faith in Jesus and, and then that's it, you're done. 
You know, as long as you've been dumped, you're saved, whatever. He also focused on what it means to live a Christian life. He didn't shrink from the often unpleasant task of warning people of their wrong beliefs or wrong action. In fact, that's often his epistles are often, that's why he's writing them. Why? Because remember, he loved and he cared for them. We're so influenced by a culture of non-confrontation and coexistence that our favorite verse for discipleship is often Matthew 7.1. Don't put it up. Does anybody know Matthew 7.1? Judge not, that you might not be judged. Which actually means do not condemn or judge too harshly. But we take it as a command to not speak the truth in love. To lovingly point out and warn people when they are not believing or living as they should. Which is exactly what Jesus and Paul and the other apostles did. It was part of their ministry and ours in love to warn, correct, admonish the people of God. Through the Word of God, which was written for that purpose. The Word of God is profitable for admonition and correction and teaching. So Paul proclaimed Christ. And he warned, corrected wrong beliefs and actions. And finally, he spent time teaching everyone with all wisdom. With Christ at the center, he taught them the scriptures. He taught them how to wisely live as believers in this world. His letters are filled with teaching uh, people both theology about Christ and practical liver, how to practically live as followers of Christ. Also notice that in verse 28, the word everyone is used three times. This is meant to emphasize the fact that the gospel is to be proclaimed to everyone and that everyone is to be warned and taught. Everyone in the church, not the elite, whoever they are, not the chosen few, not those who are in full-time ministry, but everyone is to be discipled that they might be presented to Christ as mature. Or let me put it this way, everyone is to be equipped that they might be effective ministers of the gospel. As a minister of the gospel, you need to be sure you're both being discipled and discipling others. So who are you evangelizing, sharing the gospel with, and who are you discipling? Who are you warning and teaching and equipping to be a minister of the gospel? Well, you might say, sounds like a lot of work. I don't really have time for that. I have a job, you know, unlike me. And it certainly is. That is so true. I can't argue with it. So it's important we understand and conclude with Paul labors intensely for the church. Verse 29. This is where, are you, are you still with me? You're a minister of the gospel like Paul? Here's where the rubber hits the road. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The truth is, no one can hope to be a minister, a servant of the gospel, without hard work. Paul's language in this verse is tough to hear, but compelling. The Greek word translated toil was used for work which left one weary. It was as if the the person had taken a beating. It denotes labor exhaustion. The word struggling is an even stronger term than toil. It's the Greek word that we derive our English word uh, agony from and was used for agonizing in an athletic event or a fight. The words together describe the tremendous energy of Paul's gospel ministry. 
He strained every physical, emotional, spiritual part of himself to present every man complete in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 pictures this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And Paul's not alone in this. Hard work, toiling, struggling, labor has been the hallmark of many a Christian leader. I'm reading a book right now by Greg Laurie. It's on the life of Billy Graham, which is interesting because for me, in 1976, I sort of, the first time I came to Christ, the first, the time I came to Christ was through the ministry of Greg Laurie, and then in 1983, privileged to hear Billy Graham speak, and he sort of called me to the ministry. I don't know either one of these guys personally, but they had a great impact on my life. And as I read this book, I'm just amazed at how hard Billy Graham worked, day and night, toiling. Uh, it talked about one of his crusades, that he lost 30 pounds just in his uh, preaching continually in meetings. And, you know, he didn't just have crusades. He counseled presidents and rulers. And le- Anyway, he's a good example. Martin Luther worked so hard that for many days, according to his biographers, he fell into bed. D.L. Moody became... D.L. Moody's bedtime prayer on one occasion as he rolled into the bulk, his bulk into his bed was, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. John Wesley on many occasions rode 60 to 70 miles to reach several churches preaching an average of three sermons a day. Three sermons, not, not on Sunday, three sermons a day. Now this is very convicting to me. Because I think maybe my, sometimes I suffer from the sin of uh, slothfulness, laziness. So this is definitely the place where God was speaking to me, applicable to me. But what about you? British evangelist and preacher G. Campbell Morgan kept a newspaper clipping for 20 years entitled Sheer Hard Work. And he said, what is true of the minister, and in this sense he's using it as the paid professional, is true of every man who bears the name Christ. We have not begun to touch the great business of salvation when we have sung rescue the perishing, care for the dying. We have not entered into the business of evangelizing the city or the world until we have put our own lives into the business, our own immediate physical endeavor, inspired by devotional, spiritual devotion. It's a call for everyone to engage in this kind of labor. If we're going to be an effective church... We need to labor together. But in our own human power, we cannot hope to work this hard. And so, it's of great comfort that Paul tells us that his energy, his power, was not human in origin. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Amen, hallelujah. Paul gives everything he has to see the gospel go forth and to see the church grow in maturity to make disciples, and he trusts that God will continue to powerfully work within him. Paul relies on the energy of God to accomplish his ministry. And I believe that this kind of energy and power comes from extended times in the presence of the Lord. Let me say that again. Extended times in the presence of the Lord. Reading his word, worshiping him, praying to Him. We lack the power and desire to be ministers of the gospel because we lack the will to spend time with the one who gives us the power we need. So again, the application is clear. As ministers of the gospel, do we labor, toil, struggle for the benefit 
of the church? Do we love one another as Jesus loved us? Are we willing to sacrifice for one another, to care for one another, to labor for one another? And do we receive our energy from God to do this work for, from the time spent in His presence? Paul's provided us with a model for ministry, a model that involves suffering, preaching, making disciples, and a lot of hard work for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. And my question to myself and to each minister of the gospel listening to this message is this, for the sake of this very small part of Christ's church known as Bridges, are we, am I, willing to follow Paul's example? Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for Christ's supremacy over it. And I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ as we come to this time of communion. I pray that we would be a people who minister, who minister the gospel, who share the truth of who you are in this world, who are willing to suffer, who are willing to to make disciples, to be disciples and make disciples for you. Lord, I pray you would just bring uh, conviction upon us where needed, that we might uh, be people who work hard for you in Christ's name. Sean's going to come forward and lead us in our time of communion.